Hello, and welcome to The Double Double. My name is Kelly Hogan, and joining me, as always, David Dixon. David, how's it going? It's going great, Kelly. It's a beautiful Sunday morning back in New York, and uh, looking forward to talking with his big story last night with Andrew Luck. For sure. We'll get to that a little later. So, also joining us today, we have a very special guest, is Matt Roventini, who's the head varsity baseball coach at the Poly Prep High School in Brooklyn. He's a Poly Prep alum himself and was a two-sport athlete at Hamilton College in the NESCAC, a conference Kelly and I are very aware of, where he played football and baseball. And since returning to his alma mater, Roventini has won nine NICE State Baseball Championships, 13 consecutive league championships, has notched his 300th career win this past spring, has coached, has coached multiple guys who have been drafted in the major league draft and are playing minor league baseball right now. And on a more personal note, Roventine was my coach in high school for two seasons, and we were thrilled to have him join us this morning. Coach, how are you doing? Great, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys having me on this morning. And, and Dave, I got to tell you, made me sound like I really know what I'm doing out there. Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> of course. Well, clearly something's worked. So, so we just want to touch on just just to start. You're a New York City guy, through and through. So just kind of kind of talk about what growing up in New York City was like playing playing baseball. Absolutely. Um, I like like David said. I actually grew up in Rockaway Beach. I'm back where I grew up. So I've I've kind of um, gone full circle. You know, I'm a New York City kid. Uh, grew up in Rockaway. Went to Poly myself, like you, Dave. Um, got there in the sixth grade. Spent my time at Poly playing baseball in in the summer times. Um, I got to be honest, love playing football in high school as well. Back in the day when the, when the two-sport athlete like yourself and myself kind of existed a little bit more. As a matter of fact, um, not to brag because I wasn't really good at it, but I was a three-sport athlete. I actually played basketball um, at Poly as well. Like I said, times have changed. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Things were different back then. You kind of played your sport um, in the season, and you moved on, and you played the next season. You didn't really spend the time training and you know, focusing on one thing at a time. You're just kind of a little bit more of a kid back then. Um, I loved it. You know, so being in New York the whole entire time, again, being in, being by the beach was kind of fun, but baseball was a was a priority. So the summertime was, was pretty busy, even with the beach around, you know, right down the block. I spent a lot of time playing baseball. Um, graduated from Poly, went over to Hamilton College, had a, you know, had a good time. I can't say a great career, but a great experience. It, it, was, it was good. I'm happy I did it. It was the right fit for me. Uh, graduated college, took a job. Ironically, Dave's kind of funny. My first two jobs are with the Mets in Major League Baseball. And we were just talking about Major League Baseball. Um, started there, worked in the cable television industry and sports television for a while. Made it about uh, 29 years old. Short version is made, made a life change. Decided I wanted to be a coach again. It's kind of what I love to do. Um, wanted to be around sports more than the business side of things just because it was I still wanted to be a kid, I guess, at heart. Uh, got back to coaching a poly, coaching football and baseball. And the rest, is, you know, you had mentioned in the beginning, as I've had a pretty good 15 years along the way at poly prep. So, Coach, what kind of made you want to become a baseball coach? Because, as you mentioned, you played football as well at Hamilton, and I'm guessing you probably could have gone that route if you, if you had wanted, but you, you did choose baseball. Why did you kind of make that decision? It's a bit interesting. I, ironically, I wanted to coach football. You know, my last semester at Hamilton, I actually, I was there for an extra semester. I was helping with the, the special teams coaching, very volunteer stuff, very fun, very light. Um, but it was cool. 
And when I decided to go back into coaching, my first job was actually at South Shore High School coaching football um, with buddies of mine who were nice enough to get me a job coaching a public school at South Shore High School in Canarsie area. And from there, got myself back into poly just through the people that I've known through time. And, and baseball was one of the, you know, I was going to coach football and baseball. And the irony was just, you know, I hate to see, you know, timing sometimes is everything. The opportunity to coach, to be the head coach of baseball popped up while I was an assistant doing both football and baseball. So I, I got to be honest, I'd love to say, oh, you know, I, was, I, was, I wanted to be a baseball coach my whole life. I kind of probably wanted to be a football coach a little bit more. Um, but the baseball opportunity was there, and I've always loved baseball. It's what, you know, it was a passion of mine. And, and like any coach, coaching is coaching. And um, I was doing both for about seven, eight years of poly, I think maybe nine years. And it just baseball became my focus became because of opportunity that presented itself. And, and kind of the rest is, uh, like you had mentioned earlier, it's, it's, been a, it's been a pretty good run. Yeah, that's and you've been at poly for a long time. I started at poly in the fall of 2008. So I've been at, I was at poly for a long time as myself and you've been there even longer. We, I got to see a lot of the baseball team from a little farther away when I was in middle school and then up close when I was, was on the team. But going back to when you were in high school, not, not too long ago at Poly, uh-huh. you, you played basketball with, with one of my old coaches and, and a superstar high school player and college player, Malik Russell. So, so kind of talk about just a little bit of playing with the guy who was getting all these offers and ended up at, at Notre Dame. It, it was it was weird because back then it was the world was different. You know, it wasn't all about college back then. I think it was a little bit more. It was simpler. It was kind of like let's play in high school and see where it goes from there. Uh, Malik was a phenomenal player. You know, to, to to have a six seven point guard um, playing in you know poly prep back then, as you can imagine, he was he was the dominant player on the team, um, and he was fun to play. Malik's a good kid, and, and it was funny because our basketball coach one of the years was actually the football coach, and one of my jobs was during practice that was, was to kind of, I hate to use the term, but beat up on Malik a little bit just just to, you know, so he'd get used to it when we were playing different teams because obviously he was going to be the focus. So my job as one of the basketball guys was kind of a, you know, go after him a little bit on defense. And it was a lot of fun, I got to be honest. Just being around somebody at that level, playing against someone, playing with someone at that level was a lot of fun. And we actually had a pretty nice team back then. Um I could tell you, you know, crazy as it always is, we all remember our high school days. I could probably say every guy on that roster back when I was, a, you know, Malik was a senior, I was a junior, and uh, it was fun. You know, Malik, Malik was a phenomenal player, and there was a lot of good surround, supporting cast around him. There were good basketball players. Um, Timmy Hawkins went on to play at Merchant Marine Academy. Mark Hindy, who um, was a teammate of mine, baseball and basketball, um, went on to play baseball at Vanderbilt. Uh, uh, so Damian Sanders went to Yale. Dana Schmidt. So we, we had some good ball with some basketball players around back there. It was a lot of fun. I got to be honest with you. So coach, in addition to coaching at poly prep, you also run the premier baseball performance center of New York. And there are a ton of different training facilities, uh, particularly in the, in the tri-state area. I played at Jack Cuss baseball Academy growing up, but what are some of the things that kind of premier baseball really emphasizes in the developmental process? And how does that kind of vary dependent upon the age of, of the kids or, or the men that you're working with? So it's a pretty interesting place. And a buddy of mine who's actually a polygrad as well, Phil Kelly, got involved about five years ago. And we thought it would be, to be honest with you, we, we knew it wasn't a, a brilliant business decision, but it was a kind of a cool, fun 
business decision that our kids could benefit from as well. So when we when we started the place, we had this, you know, we had a, we had the idea of keep it a, a performance center rather than kind of doing yoga and parties. We just wanted it to be baseball, and we took the idea of kind of let's be like a little bit of a Gleason's gym. You know, we'll, it'll be nice. We'll keep the walls painted and everything, but we're going to be a little bit throwback, um, a little bit different. And, you know, it's been a pretty good five years. You know, it's, like any business, it's it's still trying to, to grow and, and, and keep itself going. We, um, you know, the bottom line is we have everyone there from, let's go five, six-year-olds to guys that, you know, Aaron Hicks was over there a few weeks ago working out on an off day. You know, so it's kind of cool the dynamic that we have within the building. Um, we have some head trainers. We have, we have a, um, a fitness guy, a strength guy, CJ Loriello, who's awesome. Works with a ton of Division One athletes, basketball, baseball, and football. Um, ton of football guys in the building as well. So it's kind of a cool dynamic when you walk in the building. You got some real monsters when you walk in, and then you have you got the baseball guys. And like I said, you can have a six-year-old in there working with the trainer individually or working with his dad. And you can have, as a matter of fact, Christian Wilkins was in there before the NFL draft last year. You know, so it's, it's, it's kind of cool how the place works where you don't know who you're going to see any day. Most of the times you can see a lot of little guys working on baseball and, you know, high school kids. But you can walk in and see an NFL or, or an MLB guy in the building as well. That's awesome. And, and I have a, a soft spot for Christian Wilkins because one of my teammates currently at Wesley and Elijah Wilson was roommates with Christian Wilkins at Suffield Academy in prep school. So we always wow. used to root for him. Uh, on TV every Saturday, but so you run in Premier Baseball Academy. You're putting together a staff that that can't be too dissimilar from putting together a staff at Poly Prep for for coaching staff because you guys build a great staff. So how would you go about obviously as a head coach building a staff of of assistants and and just guys to help you with building a program over there? Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest. The most underrated part of coaching is the staff and the people you surround yourself with. Now, I appreciate in the beginning, you know, Dave, you, you kind of, you know, read out all those accolades. A lot of those accolades, I know it sounds a little cliche, you know, it, it's a team effort. Putting staff together is probably the most underrated, most important, undervalued piece of coaching that you can have. I think personally, one of the first most important things is, you know, surrounding yourself with good people and people that you trust. Um, and that's kind of was my basis when I started coaching in high school 15 years ago. Um, you know, I, I still, I, was, I guess I call myself a kid at 29. Um, I was like a deer in the headlights. I said, how do we do this? You know, how do we put this together? And the first thing I did is um, two guys that I knew as friends, in particular, Matt Durando and Jeremy Fink, um, both worked at Poly. Matt was a Poly graduate. He's still with me today, 15 years later. Not just friends, but, you know, baseball guys, but more, more you, know, comp, you know, we could trust each other. And we kind of built from there. And the biggest thing for me going forward, having you know, Joe Fisaro and Anthony Ferrante and um, now it's, you know, different guys, Chris Deli, all the, you know, Matt Durando still on board. The biggest thing for me was surrounding myself with people that, that, that I know will work hard, number one, but guys that I can trust and we're on the same page. And, and as a head coach, and I like when people, I don't want to say challenge, but at the same time, I like the assistant coaches that have a voice. And these guys all have a voice and they're, they're, they're really good baseball guys. And, you know, putting yourself with those people that you trust enables you to feel comfortable in your shoes and know whatever you're doing, yet, yet, you know, they got your back. Because there are times when you know there's a lot of ups and downs, but they got your back, and you know we work together as a team. And um, I think that was probably the biggest thing. You know, more, more important, the baseball side is very important, but people that you want to spend your time with and good people with good intentions. Yeah, definitely. And coach, I was reading something that you said. You said tradition doesn't graduate, and I, I really like that. And I'm sure it keeps guys from from years past around and a part of your program. And 
a very positive way and you've had your share of high level talents come through the poly prep program some of which have gone on to play pro ball others at very high levels of college baseball but kind of how long does it take for you to recognize that you have a you know a special player on your hands and what are some of the traits that you find them to have in common other than the fact that obviously they're they're really good at baseball you know what it's crazy because you know as a high school coach you're kind of keeping your eye out for 12 13 14 year old kids which sounds nuts but it's become the nature of the beast and i will say that i've been right and wrong like most people there are times you can find and, and david you know him is the next teammate of yours nikki stores when i saw nikki's an eighth grader kind of knew he was different you know a little bit different a little bit special he's he's bigger than everybody he's stronger than everybody he threw the ball harder than everybody you know, I, I, it, it doesn't make me a genius to say, hey, that kid's, that kid's special. Um, you know, at, at 13, 14 years old, it was pretty obvious. But there's also been guys along the way um, that probably same age, the kid on the team right now, Channing Austin, who as an eighth grader at poly prep or seventh grader, I always knew he was a really good ball player. I knew he developed into a really nice, you know, kid that would be super talented for us, but that's what level where he would go. Well, you know, you go fast forward four years later and he's committed to the University of Virginia as a baseball player. So, you know, there's all different shapes and sizes. And some kids you know real quick and other kids, you know, they have it in them. And then you watch their work ethic, which is obviously, you know, again, a little bit cliche, but the way they work, the way they're dedicated to their craft. And the way they're focused, I think that's the biggest thing that separates a lot. And, you know, their development, a lot is predicated on, you know, my job is to try to put a system in place or a program in place that's going to help them develop to be not just the best teammate, but the best player they can. But at that point, you know, it can only lead the horse to water. And it's up to them to co- follow that program and, and develop and try to make themselves better. And, um, you know, so I think that's the biggest piece is that developmental piece. Some of the guys, the guys that buy in, that are obviously talented because talent is talent. They buy in, they're talented. I think what helps those guys, they see the light at the end of the tunnel. They've seen teammates before them, the success that they've had. They're driven to get there. And a lot of those guys, you know, I think that's a big, you know, testament to the kids that, that I've coached over the years have been a great role model for the younger guys to follow in their footsteps and, and have helped, you know, the Nikki stores of the world have helped someone like Channing Austin work to get to his, you know, where he's going to end up going in college and after a senior year. Yeah, and I definitely saw that on a first-hand basis when, when I was on the team with guys who were committed to college and the freshmen and, and eighth graders really looked up to some of the upperclassmen, Tyler Winsig, uh, Dylan Martinelli, uh, as you mentioned, Nikki Storrs, Daniel Bassett, just saw how they worked every single day. And as a freshman, you're walking in, it's this is a program. It's I may not be the best player right now, but if I put in the work, I can get there eventually. But So going back a little bit, First championship season, 2007, kind of what what was going through your mind as you're going on the, the first magical run with, with clearly a very special group of guys? Yeah, that, I got a soft spot for that group. Um, those guys, when I started um, my first year, they, those guys, a lot of those guys were freshmen in the program or eighth graders that were there. And they were the guys that kind of helped turn the whole program around. And I got there and they were... I had nowhere to go with up. I think there were three and 14 the first year before I got there. And then I think we won seven games our first year and then maybe 12 or 13 the second year. And then 2007, as you mentioned, was it was a fun ride. We ended up going undefeated the whole way from end to end. Um, the, the thought was, wow, I didn't, you know, first off, I don't think I was smart enough to know. A lot of guys now say, oh, there's a three-year plan and this and that. I don't think I was smart enough. I just kind of went out to work every day and said, let's work hard and see where it goes. 
Um, I knew we had a really special group of guys. Again, I could, I could probably name you the whole 20 man roster probably if you asked me to. Um, and we had guys who their first year, I started three or four freshmen over seniors. Um, my first year on board in 2004. And I think it set a tone that nothing was guaranteed. So I know a lot of people were pretty upset. A lot of seniors like, Hey, wait, why am I not starting? The reality was the other kids were, were not only just more dedicated, but they were more talented. And now, you know, you put them two, three years later in the program, you kind of let them get their feet wet, um, fail with, you know, fail a little bit as freshmen. That's okay. You don't mind. And that year was a, was a pretty special year. And I knew it, I'll be honest. And I'm not going to give you the whole story. I'll give you the shortest version. We're down in Florida with these guys. We're playing a team from Alabama. It's only a scrimmage. It's our first scrimmage of the year. It means nothing. Um, but it meant a lot to these guys. And short version is there's, there's a bunch of home runs on both ends and, and there was a little chippiness, and, and the umpires had to get in the middle of it. A little backflipping going on. It was, it was, there, was there was a different kind of edge to this group. Like, we walk away, and the game ends. The umpires end the game in a tie because, number one, it meant nothing. Number two, I think they realized if we played any longer, it might have gotten ugly. Um, things stopped there. That night, we went back to the hotel, and I was with the coaches. I said, wow, this group is tough. I said, this is a group of guys that I want to, you know, use the old expression. I hate to use it because it's not war, it's baseball. But these kind of guys you want to go to war with. And, um, you know, it was kind of a foxhole mentality. And these guys were, weren't going to get beat by anybody. You might have been better than them, but they were going to let you. They would never prove it. They would never let you show they're better than you. And um, these guys just, they embraced every challenge along the way. And um, it was a fun ride. You know, people kept saying, oh, why are you scheduling this? You're undefeated. It was more fun to challenge these guys. And honest truth, they all stepped up to they all stepped up to that challenge back then. And it was it was ironically, we rolled through the season. You get the championship game. It takes a catch by Kevin Heller in center field to rob a kid of a home run to win a championship because baseball is such a strange game. We rolled and rolled and rolled. Next thing you know, we play a 4-3 championship game um, against a team that, again, on paper, we were a heck of a lot better than. But baseball is, an odd, is, an, is a strange game in that one day. And I'm glad that, again, I, I never questioned the guy's desire. It was a fun ride. And, um, you know, to end it that way, it's always been a special group. We actually had a reunion for them two years ago back at MCU Park um, as a 10-year reunion in 2017, which was a lot of fun bringing a lot of those guys back. And like you said, that's the whole tradition doesn't graduate. That relationship that you build as a high school coach with guys, that you now I go to their weddings, which is kind of strange, but it's a lot of fun, shows you that there's a special connection that you can build along the way, or you hope to build along the way. So, so coach, I'm actually, I'm currently reading a book called Range by David Epstein, and essentially the premise is that generalists triumph over specialists, and essentially variety is good in all aspects of life, and talking to you as a, a three-sport athlete in high school and a two-sport athlete in college, in a world that seems to be becoming more and more specialized, what would you what would you say to a high school kid deciding on going all in on one sport versus playing a variety of sports? It, you know, that's kind of the, the million-dollar question I get a lot from parents now. Like, what do I do? And, and again, I wish I had a magic ball and a little a crystal and, and you had the answer for everybody. I don't really have one. You know, Dave, I can use you as a great example. Obviously, you, you're exceptionally talented at basketball, but you love playing baseball. And, and you could you could speak for your own experience, but I'll tell you this, and not because you're on the other side of the phone right now, but, but you, you you were a huge part in our success because of the way you were a great teammate and the way you contributed along the way. And again, I don't want to make this about one person, but, but you were a basketball guy that chose to play two sports because I think the experience was a big part of it. I would love to tell everybody that's the way to go. 
you know, and, and again, I have my own, my son's going to seventh grade this year and he plays a lot of baseball and I want him to, to maybe play football or something else just for the sake of getting experience at the high school level, the three months that he's going to spend playing another sport, I don't necessarily think will will stunt his growth along the way. Yeah, he can spend another nine months working on baseball, but for three months, whether it be you know football or track or wrestling, whatever it might be, I would love to see him part of something else for three months. Number one, you get to be around different coaches, different teammates. Um, you know, so I guess the answer is, there is no answer to the question. I'm a believer. Each kid is individual. You know, there's, what's best for one kid may not be best for another. But I do genuinely believe at the high school level, spending some time playing another sport, it's 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 not going to kill you. You know, it, it still gives you nine months to focus on 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 what your your specialty is and what your focus is. Hopefully, go to play at the next level. Um, so I, I would tell kids, hey, if, if you if you love playing another sport, play it because it's not going to take away. Don't. You know, don't neglect one sport. Don't neglect your specialty for the other, but don't be afraid to play something else for three months. I think it's good to do that without losing focus of what your main, you know, what your main sport is as you move forward. Yeah, and I really appreciate that, Coach. And and truthfully, it's I stuck with playing baseball so long because just the program and the atmosphere and just the culture of the team at Poly just really accepted me and welcomed me. As I think I was one of the only guys who played a, a different sport, but it was just all about just the culture of the program and. You know, when I was on the team, we I played with some uh, guys who three of them got drafted this past year. Two others are in the one guy, Nicky Stores, as SEC at LSU, Olive McCarthy at Duke. Kind of. So you mentioned you played basketball with a highly recruited guy, Malik Russell. What's it now like on the flip side of you're coaching these guys who are getting big time scholarship offers early in high school? That's one of the differences in just the baseball versus the other sport recruiting it seems to happen a lot earlier and you're coaching these guys who are sophomores getting these huge offers and you're having mlb scouts at the games what what's it like to coach these guys who clearly are exceptional talents and are drawing a lot of interest both from high college guys and from the and from the pros i gotta be honest it's fun you know sometimes every now and then i step back and just kind of watch and say to myself wow i'm kind of i'm a little bit spoiled now we're in new york city in brooklyn it's not a hotbed we're not in southern california so to be to, to be able to coach some you know the kind of talented kids that i've been able to coach every now and then i'm smart enough to step back and appreciate and enjoy the ride and i always said you know i was coaching you know johnny franco's son jj the best thing i ever did was not screw him up you know, sometimes coaching is letting those guys play because of their talent level. And, and David, you mentioned it. I'll be honest. They're, they're on paper, the team that you were on that went down to North Carolina to play the, the, the USA National Tournament, on paper, I would tell you right now, is the most talented team probably ever coached. You know, just and again, even the year before, I had Pat DeMarco as a Vanderbilt graduate. Um, excuse me, played at Vanderbilt, now with the Yankees. There was so much talent. I have that picture in my office, and people walk in, and it's funny because, you know, first off, I don't realize how big you guys were. You know, <laughs> yourself and you between you and Nikki and Ollie, and I could, there, there must have been six, seven, eight guys that there was six, two, and above. Yeah. Um, it looked like a basketball team. It was crazy. And I probably didn't realize at the time that people look at the picture from, from that tournament and say, wow. I mean, there were there were guys in the front row that looked like little peanuts. The Tyler Winsigs, the Angelo DeCantos that are now playing at Holy Cross and Bucknell, and you know Ethan Wallace is someone you wouldn't even think of, who, who arguably might be you know one of the top players at Hamilton. And that guy, yeah. there was so much talent on their team. So you know, I sometimes you just get to watch it and enjoy it. And I'll be honest, the hardest part sometimes, and you know, a lot of coaches will tell you this, especially at the high school level, where you have so many talented guys, is is managing the personalities rather than coaching the game. 
you know, I've had my struggles along the way with, with different personalities, with super talented players, and, and I've learned. I've made my mistakes, no questions asked. But I think I've become a better coach because of it because I've learned, you know, this, first of all, it's, it's, it's a people business, and you're managing people more than you're managing baseball at times. And, um, you know, when all that talent's out there, sometimes it's, you know, there's the, the egos that go along with talent, you know, and whether we like it or not. And trying to manage those guys and let them understand it's about the team, it's a hard thing to do. But I think, you know, overall, I think I've done a pretty good job. And like I said, I've made my mistakes, but that culture that we've had within the program really does help from the guys that have done it before. A lot of times help use them as examples. You know, it's kind of fun for me, like you said, you know, bringing up names of the past. That's the most fun part of this job. So it's fun to coach those guys. And it's also, you know, having college guys call me up and ask about, you know, whoever it might be and, you know, pro guys reaching out to me. You know, I enjoy it. You know, and again, every now and then I try to look back and say to ourselves, hey, we're a little private school in middle Brooklyn, New York. The fact that we're on the same list with some of these monster schools that we get to play against and people compare us to is it's kind of fun. You know, sometimes I say, how do we do it? And I say smoke and mirrors because I'm not really sure. I don't have the answer, but it's it's a fun it's a fun way to do it. And, 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 you know, again, I a lot of it I get to say is the kids that I get to coach are different special kind of kids. So clearly, coach, you've had your share of high-level talent come through the poly program, and I won't ask you to pick the best, but who is the best or kind of most dominant baseball player that you have coached against during your time at poly? Um, I, first off, I appreciate not trying to ask me who the best player at poly was because that's what that's going to go over well with anybody because <laughs> I'm losing. The answer is I'm wrong no matter who I say. Yep. I was going to go with you, Dave, by the way. Just <laughs> it's a lot easier. No Thank offense. you. Uh, hey, but the, guy, I get the, the two people, you know, it's funny, we – it's it's interesting. It's so hard. I'll give you this: the two guys that I played that that I coach against the most that I was able to recognize were Harrison Bader, who's a starting center fielder for the for the Cardinals, and Pedro Alvarez, who uh, you know played for played for the Orioles. You know, hit on the home run derby. I had, I had a pretty good major league career. Those are two local guys that probably stand out the most along the way. And again, you, you'll probably you're good at this stuff. If you start to remember the guys that we played against, ironically, even that game in North Carolina, the starting pitcher was a second round pick of the Orioles. Yeah. Excuse me, the Blue Jays, Hagen Downer, Nick Prado was on that team. I think he was a first round pick. We played against Mark Vientos, who was the Mets' second round pick there. So along the way, it's kind of hard because I think a lot of those games when we went down south, we played against some kids that that were you know top top ten picks in the country. You know, so where they're going to go in that development, it's, it's probably hard to pick them because they're all so good. They're all first and second rounders. Um, so it's hard to answer that. But the guys that I saw on a consistent basis, probably locally, are both, I would say, Harrison Bader and, and Pedro Alvarez. You know, to be honest with you, I would say Pedro Alvarez even more because when he stood, he got up to the plate, it, was, it almost felt as if it wasn't even worth the time. Like, there was nothing we could do. <laughs> yeah, it, it felt like that, I'll be honest. I, I didn't have any answers. He was just too good at that point. Um, but, it, again, there have been a lot of really good guys, especially down south. So I'm probably leaving out 15 names of guys that you may have seen along the way, even that we got to play against while we were down there. Yeah, one of the great stories of Pedro Alvarez, every time we go up and play the Horace Mann School, their field has like a field house almost in right field, and the tennis courts are behind it. So before every game, Coach would always tell us about how when Alvarez would up, they would have to clear, during practice, would have to clear the, the tennis courts because he, he could have killed someone. Yeah, it, it, it was <laughs> a short, funny story with him. Yes, first off, it was, it was fun to watch his BP in high school. It was fun. Again, I was still a younger coach and wasn't accustomed to all the, the scouts and whatnot around. But my first 
game up there, the Indian scout comes up to me and said, Coach, are you going to pitch to him? You know, and I'm a brazen, you know, 30-year-old kid, 31, 32, whatever, thinking, of course I am. Why would I not pitch to him? And Ryan Burke, who played for us, who went to Wake Forest, um, who pitched to Wake Forest, was on the mound. And I said, all right, you know, this could, maybe we got a shot. And, um, you know, and I fell into the trap of the Indian scout and the other 10 scouts who wanted to watch Pedro Alvarez hit. And his first at bat, he puts a ball over the wall. His second at bat, I'm like, we'll do it again. He, he hits one off the wall. It took me to my third at bat to realize maybe I should intentionally walk the guy before, you know. It took me three times to realize, wait a minute, this, this like, look, you know, this machismo really doesn't work sometimes for the guys that good. Let me actually coach for a minute and send him to first base on his own. So um, I got caught up, you know, as, as, as a young coach. I got caught up in the moment. It was it was fun to watch play. For sure. And, and just one one last question about just coaching the like the superstar. So in, in basketball, especially it's, it's like the summer basketball seemingly is more and more important. And that was one thing I didn't recognize when I was playing baseball in high school until I really got to spend some time with Anthony Prado and Daniel Baston. And, and those guys are just how important summer baseball was when I was learning that like Nick stores was moving to Georgia for a month to play summer ball. And, and just to just talk a little bit about just the differences between summer and high school ball and just the challenges of, of coaching guys really at the beginning of this long six month period of the ramp up where it seemingly summer baseball is so important now. Yeah, you know what? There's no doubt. As a high school coach, I totally appreciate and understand how important summer ball is. Uh, it's different. You know, high school, I love to say high school is about the front of your jersey. Summer ball is probably about the name on the back of your jersey. And that's nothing wrong with that. It's just the nature of the beast. And and so it's different dynamic. But again, the importance of summer baseball is huge. You know, like you mentioned, Nikki and, and Pat DeMarco went and played for Team Elite down in Georgia and moved down there for six months. So that is six weeks, excuse me. So there's a huge sacrifice. And the big reason is why every college and pro guy recognizes that when you put all the best talent in, in one or two places, everybody wants to see it go. Um, it's different. I always believe, you know, summer ball, the talent level is fun to watch. You know, there's some really high, all the highest level guys get put into the same places and compete against each other. High school ball is different. You know, we spend nine months together to play 27 games. Summer ball, you probably play 50 games in, in two months, not even. You know, it's a very different dynamic. You know, I always feel like we spend that time trying to help develop and train. And come summertime, hey, they're just out there. They're ready to roll. They're playing They're, they're playing their game. So I love the idea that we get to hopefully work with them to make them better. So when they get to the summer, um, they're at their best. Because the reality is the opportunities and, and, and the amount of eyeballs that these guys, from everyone, from the kids that are going to play at the NESCAC, from the kids that are going to play at LSU, there are eyeballs on all of them all the time. And summer ball is super important. You know, the relationships I have with a lot of these college guys or pro guys, a lot of it is, is the recognition to say, hey, you should watch this guy. The reality is they get to see them mostly during the summertime. You know, they'll come they'll come over to Brooklyn or Poly, the pro guys, some of the college guys, but a lot of it gets done in the summertime. A lot of where, where they get seen, as you mentioned, Danny and, and Anthony and Nikki and Pat and all those guys, you know, they made their name at Poly, but what they did in the summertime really helped them kind of get to where they were able to go going forward all right coach i have one final question so i'm going to take you back you know three to five years if i were to step in the box against david dixon what's what's the scouting report what can i kind of expect am i looking at heaters am i looking at some off speed what am i uh what's your scouting report on david dixon the pitcher it was all Uh, off speed I can tell you right now, we're looking for the splitter in the dirt with two strikes is the yep. pitch. No, question, no <laughs> questions asked. He'll start you with the fastball. You think it's you, you think he's going to blow you away, and he 
he might come out thinking, okay, you know, right, I'm going to time this guy up. And again, a lot of baseball guys would say a lot of arms and legs. Arms and legs are hard when they're flying at you. <laughs> and then he's, he's going he's gonna to get ahead. He's going to pound the zone, and he's going to throw the splitter in the dirt to get you out with two strikes. And Dave, by the way, you're still part of one of our stories with Nikki Stores. At practice, you're throwing live, and Nick's having a bad day, and you're on the mound, and he does not want to face you. I don't know if I've ever told you this. And I'm by the dugout, and he goes, bro, if I'm not getting up, I struck out twice already. And I think Bob Tomer <laughs> struck him out and, and somebody else. And you were there. It was your turn. You were on the mound. We're kind of in a squad. to go playing live. And you're on the mound. And he goes, Rove, there's no way I'm not going to get a hit. And I'm like, Nicky, you got to get another at bat. He goes in there, and you might remember this. Yeah. Three pitches. Nicky, I'm sorry if you hear this. I'm not trying to put you down, bud, because I love you, bud. Three pitches later, I think two fastballs and a splitter in the dirt. Nicky sat back in the dugout and said, I told you I shouldn't have got up <laughs> on the three pitches. So that was the sequence. I think he went fastball, maybe splitter, splitter. Yeah. Next one in the dirt. No questions asked. That's, that's the scouting report on David Dixon on the mound. Yeah. That was. <laughs> That was my last baseball practice, and I could have pitched forever. I was just like, "Hey, coach, you know, it's like it's like I, I read one book is about this guy. It was Mark Tyson playing in the title game. He was a walk. I was, hey, I got five fouls. Like I, either, I was like, hey, this is my last practice. Like I could pitch until like the sun goes down. Like my arm doesn't need any more. But right, uh, that's that's the beauty of high school sports, right there. That sacrifice of hey, I could do this forever because I'm you know trying to enjoy that last you know that last sunset. And so, and again, I appreciate it, Dave. It was a lot of fun, too. And it's, again, it's crazy to think the amount of stories, you, you know, I could probably sit here and tell about every guy along the way. And that's what makes this a lot of fun, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. And there's so, there's so many stories that, that I heard is like through, through the grapevine. There's just legendary stories from guys before I was there. But my, but my final question, because I know you got to go, we played a lot of big games together, Coach. And I couldn't figure it out while, while I was playing. But do you have a, a pregame superstition you there, Dave? Yeah, I'm there. Good. I'm sorry, I lost you. Pre-game superstition yeah, before we, every game? Yeah, well, because we played in a lot of big games. We played down in the USA Baseball in North Carolina in front of dozens of pro scouts. We played in championship games, big regional games. I, I couldn't figure out if, if you had any pre-game superstitions. Coach Ant, it was clear. He had to have the helmets in the right way, the sunglasses on. Uh, but I couldn't figure you out. But So so do you have a, uh, a pre-game superstition? Um, not necessarily. I, I got to be honest with you. I, I am superstitious, but nothing pregame that has to be done the same way. Not the, you know, the fried chicken that Wade Boggs, Coach Ann had the baseballs, they throw the first base. Run. I will say this. It, it's something I'm probably not allowed to admit. When we win, I don't change my socks. Okay. So there hits a point. Is, so it's more of a postgame, let, you know, let the good times roll. If we kept winning, I leave the same socks unwashed on. Not all day, obviously. I don't sleep in them. But for, the, I, for my game socks, I'll put the same ones on over and over. So I kind of hate to say it, but I love when the socks are stinky. You kind of put themselves on my own. <laughs> that means things are going pretty good. So it's more of a, a postgame. Let's, let's, let's ride and keep these socks on. They're good luck. The game, you know, ritual as you go. That's awesome, and uh, just just knowing you're you're a big college football guy, you got you got a team that you're looking out for this year, maybe a little under the radar, and just who is your team going into to this season? Well, I, I I will admit, back from when I was a little kid, um, I've always been a Michigan fan. Back from the days of Anthony Carter, so I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself. 
So the days of Anthony Carter when there was probably one or two games on TV, I always I was always a Michigan fan for when I was a little guy. So I'm rooting for them, and I think actually I'm going I'm to go out there and I'll make my bold prediction as I heard you guys make yours. I'm going to tell you Michigan's finally going to break through and beat Ohio State this year. Oh, wow. There we this, go. This is the year. Yeah, that's my bold prediction of the year. Uh, Michigan is going to win the Big Ten this year finally. We're going to beat Ohio State. Uh, that's number one. So that's what I'm rooting for. But like everybody out there, it's hard not to admit that Alabama and Clemson are the best. Um I was looking to see them there. I know Georgia might sneak their way in, um, but I have my fingers crossed and you know my toes crossed that uh, the Wolverines might have a shot this year to to get themselves into the college playoffs. So I'm uh, I'm going to use a sleeper this year and think Michigan might sneak their way into the college playoffs this year. I like that pick, and Jim Harbaugh would certainly, uh, for the sake of his job security, like to do that as well. But coach, thank thank you so much for for taking the time to join us. I know uh, you know obviously you're a busy guy and. You know, Sunday mornings are always busy. So really appreciate you uh, joining us. Guys, I really appreciate it. And good luck. It's a lot of fun listening to you guys on the podcast as well. Thanks, Coach. I'll be back for a game definitely this spring. It's, it'll, 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 be, it'll be a little different now that I don't know anyone on the team, but it'll be <laughs> a lot more fun just to see you guys and, and just the whole pilot again. Well, looking forward to it, Dave. And again, thank you guys so much. I appreciate the time. Of course. Thanks, Coach. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the shocking Andrew Luck retirement. And we're back. So, David... Last night, Andrew Luck retired in what was probably the most shocking news that I can remember in sports. I think that's a little, uh, a little dramatic to say it's the most shocking news in, in all of sports, but it was definitely, it was definitely, it caught me very, very off guard and, and very much in surprise. But uh, especially just with the amount of money he was leaving. By retiring about $58 million, according to, to Darren Rovell and a bunch of other people in the know on Twitter. But when when you watch a, his press conference, it was really just clear that this is something that, that he's been thinking about for a while and struggling with. And, you know, clearly this is the best decision for him. Honestly, I don't even think that's hyperbole just because here's a guy who's 29, supposed to be in his physical prime, walking away from football. Yes, $58 million has been left on the table, as you mentioned, but. I saw this, and usually, you know, there's times when Woj will tweet out transactions, and even the Russell Westbrook trade, we were on a podcast when that happened, and I was caught off guard, and, you know, there's a ton of other transactional things and, and you know, stories that are reported across sports, but I cannot remember a time in which I was more just, you know, flabbergasted and in a state of awe than I was when I saw this last night. I think this is probably one of the most shocking like retirement or transactional decisions. Personally, I think that the Aaron Hernandez murder arrest story from, from our <laughs> right, lifetime was probably more fair. shocking. Uh, but just but just in terms of you know the less criminal, this is definitely one of the most shocking uh, decisions or announcements that we've heard because also it was luck was clearly caught off guard. I was reading that he was more prepared to give this announcement tomorrow, or excuse me, now today, Sunday afternoon. But it leaked. Shefty did a great job of getting the scoop, and uh, Luck was forced to do an impromptu press conference after the game. And 
I thought he handled it really well. He handled it way better than uh, than the Colts fans who were booing him off the field, which was I thought was really embarrassing for for that whole city and, and, and franchise. I thought that was disgraceful as well. And Andrew Luck through six NFL seasons, just so the audience has an idea if they're not already aware of some of the stuff he was dealing with. He's played with torn cartilage and two ribs, a partially torn abdomen, a lacerated kidney that left him peeing blood, at least one documented concussion, a torn labrum in his throwing shoulder, and then this calf and ankle issue. So he's definitely been dealing with a lot. And for the fans of of Indianapolis to boo him, you know, I think that's that's clearly a low blow, but I, I respect a guy who's who's willing to walk away from the money and walk away from the fame and the spotlight if it's not necessarily what makes him happy and it's he doesn't enjoy waking up every morning and kind of going to work and you know fighting through all those injuries. And I think it's really interesting when you see what the other players, current players and former players, say about uh, the Andrew Luck news because it is. They have all basically said the same thing of we don't see as fans or media members or whatever. We don't see the Monday to Saturday. We don't see the off seasons. We don't see the early mornings. We only see game day. And we don't really know what these guys go through to get their bodies ready to play on Sunday. And as you mentioned, all those injuries, you know, that's a lot of rehab. And we've both been injured. I, you know, I was injured this this past season and, and rehab is tough. And I did it for about just way shorter period of time than than Andrew Luck, and it's and it's tough on you. And clearly, Luck, it's it's uh, after years of doing that, it's you could just see that if, if if he lost the joy of playing football, it's hard to keep sacrificing your body for something that that you don't love to do. Clearly, and the Colts were thought to be somewhat in the Super Bowl conversation, and this pretty much puts any thought of even the Colts as a playoff team into serious doubt. What do you think is Indianapolis's plan of action moving forward? I think that their first plan is just to figure out besides just the quarterback situation, just like just making sure that like the team as a whole, that there isn't some type of animosity because this whole thing can, can either divide a team or, or bring a team together. So just making sure that, that, that the team is united behind Jacoby Brissett because you could clearly see a pathway for the season going, oh, hey, well, if we had luck, this is what, what we would do. Well, you don't have Andrew Luck anymore. It's like, guys, we, we, we just got to move on and just be united behind Jacoby if he's really the guy or go out and and try and get another quarterback. I'm not really sure who would be available. They would clearly have to trade for someone unless that um, unless they go out and try to sign Colin Kaepernick. Uh, I and I don't really know who would be available because it seems unrealistic to think that they could go out and get Eli Manning or Teddy Bridgewater or, or guys who are seemingly more expendable than others. Yeah, and Frank Reich had success with a backup quarterback in Philadelphia. He won the Super Bowl with Nick Foles when Carson Wentz went down, but. I think going an entire season with Jacoby Brissett, who I think is a fine quarterback, but he's he's certainly not at the level of an Andrew Luck. It would be ideal possibly for the Colts to find a replacement. Who that might be, like you mentioned, is very challenging, but Jacoby Brissett is entering a contract season. The roster around surrounding him is in very good shape. They have young talent on both sides of the ball. This is an up-and-coming team. Chris Ballard is one of the better executives in all of football. 
if there were a situation in which a quarterback was kind of thrust in as Jacoby Brissett has kind of been in Indianapolis, I can't really envision a better scenario than this. And you kind of, you know, you mentioned some names. I think Detroit has kind of been treading water for years now. What would stop Indianapolis from at least giving them a call and just inquiring about Matthew Stafford? And if it takes a first round pick, this is a team that is a quarterback away. You can make the argument from a Super Bowl. Matthew Stafford has never really been surrounded with adequate talent. Yes, he had Kelvin Johnson, but outside of that, he's had, I wouldn't say great resources relative to the rest of his division and certainly the NFL. I think I think that's a path the Colts should at least consider. I think that one thing that might hesitate them is that you see kind of the pathway for success currently in the, in the NFL, the very trendy thing, is to succeed with your quarterback on a rookie-scale contract with you know Jared Goff and Carson Wentz and all these guys, Russell Wilson with, with the Seahawks, and you have all these guys, the quarterback's most important position on smaller contracts. And if you go out and get Stafford, that, that is a really big contract, and the Colts are going to have to pay some of their guys probably sooner than we anticipate as well, especially on, on the defensive side of the ball too. And I think maybe just taking on such a big contract for a guy who, albeit, as you said, hasn't had Calvin Johnson for the last few years and has, you know, the the team has never been been that good, but I think Stafford has is like four and fifty against teams who have been over five hundred in his career, like something crazy bad like that. So, so Stafford clearly uh, is an is an average quarterback, and and I don't know if this Colts team is really there is really that good where an average quarterback could put them over the top. But I give props to you, you your bold pick about the Titans making the playoffs. Uh, you knew that before the the Andrew Luck, so maybe that will even come come to fruition. Maybe they need Tannehill. I, I wish I had some insider information on that one, but uh, I did not. I think, I mean, Andrew Luck, David, is it's not as though he was getting paid peanuts either. And yes, the best way to construct a roster is with a young rookie quarterback. But I don't think it's. I mean, now Andrew Luck's money is probably off the books. I'm not. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure how that works with retirement, but I would imagine that he foregoes that money and that their slate is kind of wiped clean. So if you can bring in a quarterback with, I'm not saying Matthew Stafford is comparable to Andrew Luck, but he's certainly closer than Jacoby Brissett is. And if the only thing you have to sacrifice is, I don't even, I mean, is Matthew Stafford worth worth a first round pick at this point? I would say, yeah, he's a quarterback in the NFL and he's a starting quarterback for that sake. So I would say yes, but I don't really think the price is that high but um i i certainly understand what you're saying though because it'll also be interesting because the colts are so talented you could see them still winning about five games five six games this year which wouldn't put them at the top of the draft in a, in a typical year so it would put them in, in the mid like five to ten range probably so maybe they wouldn't get to it but but they could reload with a justin herbert or a jake from or a, or a, a guy like that a top quarterback prospect where they could really see hey if we nail this the quote-unquote next luck or the next Peyton uh that that way they can rebuild their team around a guy a quarterback on a rookie contract to make use of just how talented the rest of their roster is yeah for sure all right Dave let's let's wrap this bad boy up and we will be back hopefully later in this week maybe talking a little bit of uh college football before the season starts for sure it was a it was a great week zero last night Miami, Florida went down to the wire. Florida started a little slow, but uh, 
they eked out the win over the U. And an exciting game out out west with your boy uh, Khalil Tate coming up just a little short. One yard short, Dave. One yard short. That's a tough loss to Hawaii. Kevin Sumlin, the heat on that seat kind of got turned up a little bit. But um, I thought Khalil Tate was impressive. And uh, I mean, overall, obviously, obviously not a great night for the Pac-12, but they can kind of redeem themselves next week when Oregon gets a shot at Auburn. So that'll be a, that'll be a fun one to watch. For sure. And just... You know, how can someone be on a hot seat in week zero? Like, it's not even week one yet, but I mean, I, as a, if you're losing, you're losing to Hawaii and you're already coming off kind of a disappointing year one season. Khalil Tate's back. The expectations are high. I'm not saying he's going to get fired, but I'm saying that's a game Kevin someone should have won in his sleep. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that's probably fair. But looking forward to, to of the official week one of college football next week. Can't wait. That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you wouldn't mind, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Five stars would be much appreciated. If you have any feedback for the show, good, bad, or indifferent, you can shoot us an email. Our email account is doubledouble402 at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us. Our Twitter account is dbl underscore dbl podcast any feedback would be much appreciated thank you for listening take care and make it a great day